All right. Give you a second there. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we'll begin reading this morning at verse number 13. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. That sounds a bit quiet to me. Yeah, let's lift that up just a little bit. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. Francois, we're getting there? That sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. All right, verse 13. That, that might even be a bit much. I wonder if you can take me down just a little bit. All right, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse number 13. As you can see, we are continuing on verse by verse through this book. If I could give it a title to the whole book, I would say Tutorials for Tribulations or Tutorials in Tribulations. Today the sermon is called Tethered During Tribulations. I don't know if the word tethered, is that a, a common word? Are we all familiar with that word, tethered? I see a few blank looks on that. We'll, we'll explain that just now. That's all right. Second uh, Thessalonians 2 and verse number 13, the apostle Paul writes here, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I can point this out as we read, notice that that was all one sentence. There's a full stop. Verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Full stop. That's its own sentence. Verse 16, Now, our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and given us everlasting consolation, and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, and establish you in every good word and work. Again, all one sentence. And those three sentences will make up our three points today. If I can't ask you to bow your heads with me, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of being together. Thank you for sending your Son to give us this great hope, this blessed hope through grace. Lord, please direct our attention. Help us to focus now on what you have to say to us. Comfort, comfort those hearts that are in desperate need of it. Lord, encourage those that are in desperate need of it. Help us to stay tethered during these tribulations. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, if I can direct your attention to the outline that you should have, I've given you, instead of a little paragraph or a sentence or two, a picture of two people playing tetherball. How many of you know the game tetherball? Can I see your hands? Uh, a few of you. I think you might know it more by, by the name of swing ball, right? Swing ball. I don't think it's precisely the same. I might be wrong, but swing ball, as I've seen it here, has a smaller ball, maybe a tennis ball or something. You guys use paddles. Tetherball is as actu it's actually its own ball. You can put whatever ball you want on the end of the cord, but there is a proper ball in America known as a tether ball. It has a little hook on it, and you use whatever cord. You can use a chain, a twine, a rope. Those are the three cords I have seen used. And as you can see, you have a pole, a fixed pole, an upright pole pointing directly up, straight to heaven, completely right and upright and straight and fixed in the ground. You get it. You get it. And then there's this battle going on. The the object of the game is to smack the ball as hard as you can 
and make it go around the pole so fast and so hard that your opponent is not able to hit the ball back the other direction. Much like swing ball, I believe. So the ball's going round and round, and the opponent, right, I'm hitting it this way, my opponent is trying to hit it back the, uh, the opposite direction. So one guy is going clockwise, the other, the other guy anti, or, uh, counterclockwise, and so forth. And the idea, the only way to win the game is to get the ball completely wrapped around the pole, right? So if you hit it hard enough, fast enough, and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you can hit it so hard and fast, the opponent doesn't see it coming, and go bam, right, <laughs> right in the schnoz, right? When I was growing up, I loved this game. A lot of the parks, public parks in America, has a proper tetherball pole fixed into the ground, not like a tire with cement like you see in that picture, but it's actually fixed in the ground, and they have a permanent strong chain or something that holds the tetherball. We would play this all the time. You know, many of you know, I grew up in a, uh, in a, let me say my dad was divorced. My mom left when I was young. So my dad, unfortunately, had to drop us off at a daycare center every morning and pick us up there every afternoon. Well, afternoon, you know, we'd have two or three hours sometimes at the daycare center. My best friend at that time, I guess I was in fifth and sixth grade, so I was about 10, 11, 12. Uh, my best friend was a little black guy named Ontario Jones. We called him Scooter. Uh, his mom called him that. That was I didn't choose that name. He he was Scooter because that that kid could run. Woo! He was fast. Me and Ontario, we did everything together, including tetherball. So man, we'd smack that thing back and forth hours and hours spent in the little tyke's daycare backyard with that tetherball pole back and forth, back and forth. So I got very familiar with this game. Now what I want to use is the idea of tetherball this morning. And you can see there's three main components. You have the, just for the tetherball, not counting the people involved, you have the upright pole. And I would like to liken that to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He is perfectly pointed up to heaven and fixed firmly, right? Rooted and grounded down here in the earth. Son of man, son of God, he is the upright standard. And then you have the tetherball, the ball itself. That is the thing that constantly gets smacked back and forth, back and forth, constantly in motion, always chaotically moving. You never know what to expect. The ball is me. The ball is you. And then there are cords that connect the ball to the pole. A ball without a cord is it's just going to fly off into outer space. It will become an unidentified aerial phenomenon. <laughs> You'll smack it as hard as you can and it will fly through the air. You must have a cord connecting you to the pole. And in this passage, I believe that there are three different lessons to be learned, three different cords that will connect us tightly to our upright pole and keep us from flying off, falling away from the faith. There are three things, and like I mentioned earlier, chain, a twine, and a rope. I've seen all three things used in a tetherball match, and I'm going to use those three things as my illustrations today, things that will keep us tethered to the Lord, connected to Him, while life is smacking us about left to right, clockwise, counterclockwise. We hardly know what's going on. We need something to keep us connected to Christ. So let's begin again in verse number 13. And point one on your outline, I want, to, I want you to write this down, chain of being chosen. 
There is the chain of being chosen. Verse 13, the very first word says, but. Now this shows that there is a distinction between what Paul was just talking about in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. We are the other side of this coin, if you will. In verse 10, you can see at the end of the verse, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. In verse 12, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And then Paul begins verse 13 with, but. Our heart is broken for those people who willingly reject the gospel. Somebody gave them the truth in love and tried to show them how to be saved, but they chose to love unrighteousness and to find pleasure in that rather than choosing to accept the Lord Jesus Christ and finding real joy in Him. Paul says, now that breaks my heart. That is what we do not want to happen. Verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Now that little phrase there, of course, would raise many a theological eyebrow. It says that God has chosen people, and it says that from the beginning He has done so. How does this work? If God is the one choosing people to be saved, does this indicate we don't have a choice in the matter? And I would like to say it's quite the opposite. We do very much have a choice. I think you could see that in verse 10 and 12, couldn't you? Why did certain people not get chosen? It didn't say because God did not choose them first. The reason they were not chosen is because when God delivered them the truth, they rejected it. They did not, as it says in verse 10, receive the love of the truth. The problem here is they didn't receive it. So in verse 13, why did God receive us or choose us? Because at some point you were delivered the gospel and you chose to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. From the beginning, God has had a plan. God has had a plan. And the plan was, if anybody receives my son, I'll receive that sinner. So the Bible says in John chapter 1 and verse number 12, but as many as received him... To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So God's plan was one day I will send my son to die for the sins of the world, to pay for their sins. And if anybody chooses him, I choose that person. Now Paul, interestingly enough, at the end of verse 13, he lays out the three important parts to God's plan. But he does it in reverse order. He does it in step three, then two, and then one. So let's take a look here. In verse 13, it says, Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through, here's sub point one, if you will, sanctification of the Spirit, and sub point two, belief of the truth. And verse 14, whereunto he called you by our gospel. There's sub point three. There's three parts to this. So working our way, if we can start with the last one, he calls you by the gospel. Have you, you've read this, no doubt. Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. Yeah. See, some, the idea among some Reformed people, people of a Reformed theology, they believe that when God calls, you cannot say no. They call it irresistible grace, that if God calls you, there, therefore you're in. But then how would we say many are called and few are chosen? 
Because many are called, but not everybody answers the call. Not everybody accepts the call. Many are called, few are chosen, so the gospel goes out to every creature. Now, those that receive it. Notice what it says in verse 14. Called you by our gospel. The gospel does the calling. Do you see that? The gospel does the calling. The gospel explains to you why you need a Savior, why Jesus is the only Savior, and, and how you can have Him move into your heart. The gospel explains all that to you. So the gospel calls you. Notice in verse 13, sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit does the sanctifying. To sanctify is to set apart, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. The, the gospel calls, the Spirit sanctifies, but what about the truth? What does the truth do? The truth is something you have, you have to take action on this. The gospel takes action and calls. The Spirit takes action and sanctifies. The truth is sitting there waiting for you to take action. Belief of the truth. See, now the truth is there. You have to do something with that. Hold your place here. Turn to Romans chapter 8, if you would, please. Romans chapter 8. Now, you're going to see the same points being made here, but in the, the proper chronological order. Paul just put it in reverse order in Thessalonians, but Romans 8, let's read together verse 29 and 30. The Bible says here, Romans 8 and verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Let's stop for a moment and make sure we understand that. Whom he did foreknow. Did God know from the beginning who would receive Christ? Sure, he's God. He knows everything. He knows it before it happens. But do not think of God as a time traveler. I, I think a lot of misunderstanding arises from not understanding eternity. God is in eternity. He's not in time. You and I think of time travel. You know, I can move from this time, go to the pet. Wouldn't that be awesome? go to the past, go to the future, move about. But then you as a human are limited to being in one time at one place, right? So here you are. But that's not how God works. God, He is the one who is and was and is to come at the same time. So while He's watching it from back there, He's watching it from right here and He watched it already in the future. At the same time. So listen to this statement. Does God know what you're going to choose? Yes, God knows what we're going to choose. Think about that statement. God knows. There's His omnipotence. There's His omniscience. God knows what we are going to choose. There's our free will. Just because God is omniscient and knows what's going to happen does not mean that He made it happen. It just means that He saw it happen because He is eternal. That's part of God's plan. The plan is, I know who's going to receive my son, and if anybody does, I am going to work in that person little by little to conform him or her to the image of my son. And one day, I am not just going to change them on the inside, I'm going to change them on the outside. I'm going to give them a brand new body, just like the one my son had when he rose from the dead, and it will match the nature that I've worked inside of them. He is building the image of Christ in you, and one day that image will be on you. That's the whole plan. That way you can live with him forever in perfect harmony. So notice it here, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed 
to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now watch the chronology of this or the steps to this. Verse 30, moreover, whom He did predestinate, He knew who would be part of this plan, them He also called. What does He use to call? The gospel, right? We had that in Thessalonians. And it says there, whom He called, them He also justified. What would justify a person? Believing the truth. When you accept Christ, now you are justified by faith. You're justified by faith. That faith, that's the belief of the truth. He says, them he also called, uh, I'm sorry, whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What, what is this glorification he speaks of? This is the Spirit of God working in you, changing you, little by little, to be less like you and more like Christ. Now, that glorification process, it takes time. It's not an overnight thing. Little by, you know where the, glorify, the glorification starts is by you going through trouble. The Bible says that when you are being persecuted, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Because when Jesus was here, didn't he get persecuted for doing right? So when you are persecuted for following Jesus, that same glory that came on him also comes on you. Little by little, the Spirit begins to work in you and sanctify you. That is to set you aside. That's what sanctification is. It sets you aside. After you get saved, you know what happens? You are set aside from your sins. Your sins are washed away. They're as far as the east is from the west. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, so that, that, that's the start of it. You're washed clean in the blood. Your soul has been sealed unto the day of redemption. That's, that's one part of it. Then... The Holy Spirit begins to set you aside from your bad habits. He starts to change. He, he takes that bad temper you have and gives you patience. He takes those bad words that you like to use and puts good words in their place. Those bad habits that hurt you physically, hurt you mentally and emotionally, the Lord starts working in you to change those things. And all of a sudden, those bad relationships, those bad friendships, He sets you aside from that. He puts those behind you. And says, let's get you some different friends. Let's give you a new place to go. Let's give you some new things to enjoy. And he sets you aside to these things. And then one day the trumpet's going to sound. And he's going to sanctify you from this world. <laughs> like physically. Like take you out of this world and set the world aside. And now you'll be with the Lord forever. You'll have a brand new body. One that's just like the one Jesus had when he rose from the dead. That's all part of the sanctification process. Come back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's why I believe it's important to know what this plan is all about. If you understand the long-term goal, what is God trying to accomplish when tribulations happen, when the tetherball, you, gets smacked by life, and, and you think, oh man, this is, I'm, I'm going nowhere, I'm about to lose, and, and you, you can't understand why life keeps smacking you, and then your boss smacks you this way, you get home and your spouse hits you the other way and, you get, and the kids smack you the other way and then, bam, the doctor smacks you. And then, right, it's just nonstop, back and forth, problem after problem after problem. If you don't understand what the big picture plan is, you might be tempted to start asking God, why are you letting this happen? Everywhere I go, every time I turn around, something else is smacking me. Now, God, life seems pretty useless. I think I must be on the wrong path if you keep letting these things hit me the way that they're hitting me. 
until you know what the plan is. And God says, every time something smacks you, I can use that to conform you a little bit more to my son. Do you still have Romans 8? Do any of you still keep it? I, you don't even need to see it. I think you know this verse by heart. Romans 8, 28. We started in verse 29, didn't we? You remember what verse 28 says? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. You need to know His purpose. What's the plan? What's the long-term goal, God? He says, I'm trying to get you to be more like my son. And if you need to take a few knocks in order for that to happen, just know that I can use all of these things to accomplish my purpose in your life. So that way when life smacks you, instead of going, but God, why? You say, God, I don't know how, but I know you're going to use this, so thank you, Lord. You know what that'll do? It'll keep you tethered to the pole. Instead of flying off and falling away and running away from God and saying, God, why do you keep letting these things hit me? You say, God, the more they hit me, the closer I get to the pole. The more tightly wound around the pole I get. And that's the point. That's the point. The world looks at this and thinks the ball is getting hit and it's wrapping around the pole. And listen, the world says when the ball gets wrapped around the pole, you lose. The world says you lose, right? But God says that's exactly the point. I want you to get as close to the pole as you can get. See, we look at the smacks of life a little bit differently. If you know the plan. That's why Paul lays it out. Something to keep them tethered during tribulations. If I can use a different analogy, many times in Malawi, I would be invited to preach in some village, some place that I'd never gone before, and some place where not very many people had gone before. This was evidenced by the fact that there were no roads, no real roads. There were pathways where people had walked. There were some bicycle paths, and then you could see where a few lorries or bigger vehicles had driven, but there was no real road. So when these Malawians would call and say, please visit this village. How do I get there? It's not like you can put that in the GPS. <laughs> Where's, you know, where is Chatata? Well, Chatata is not in the GPS. It just says, you know, unknown. So I have to rely on the village chief or whoever called to give me directions. Oh, man, their directions are weird. <laughs> so they would say, you know, take this left, take that. You see this tree, you see this rock, and they would sometimes say, I will send a man and he will stand at the point where you need to turn. Well, I hope he's there. <laughs> I hope he's there. I hope he's on time. Because you know me, Mzungu, I'm going to be on time. <laughs> but if he's not on time, well, I'm up the creek. And there were some times when those guys would say, listen, pastor, as you're driving out here, there's going to be part of the road or the path that is so bad, you have to go so slow you may not make it through. You might have to go around it. It depends on if it rained or not. But don't get discouraged. The village is just on the other side. If they had not told me that, I would get to that spot on the road and go, okay, there is no way I'm going to risk going over this part of the road because I very well could get stuck and it would ruin my entire journey. I seriously doubt anybody could get over this. So if nobody could get over this part of the road, obviously there's no village here. I must be on the wrong path. Do you understand my point? Sometimes you're going along in life, you, thought, I, you, you think, I, I'm on the right path. I think I'm doing things correctly. But all of a sudden, some tragedy happens, some disaster, some chaos, some mess. Life just smacks you. You go, wait a minute. 
Nobody told me this was going to happen. I wonder if I'm on the right path. I wonder if it's worth proceeding. But if somebody already told you these kind of things are going to happen, you're going to find rough spots in the road of life. You might have to take your time. You might have to make a few adjustments. But keep pressing on. You won't give up on the journey because somebody told you it's all part of the plan. These, this chain of being chosen, the chain of being chosen keeps you tethered during tribulations. You know what's interesting about a chain? You have one link, another link, another link, another link, right? It's one thing after the other. It's one thing after the other. So first, I get called by the gospel. Second, right, the, the gospel, here's the truth. Second, I have to believe the truth. Third, the Holy Spirit begins to work in me. Listen, while he's working in you, if you work along with him, if you submit to what he's doing, it goes much better. You can fight against what he's trying to do in your life, but then you'll grieve the Holy Spirit and be miserable the whole way to glory. What's the last link in the chain? Verse 14, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What glory is that? Not just standing before him in heaven, but standing there in a glorified, sinless body, being able to look back at your life without regretting your mortal existence, without looking back at your life going, I did nothing for him while I was on the earth. I completely ignored the plan and just went about life my way. He says, here's the plan so that when you get to the destination, you don't have a life full of regrets. This chain, one thing after the other, the chain of being chosen keeps you tethered. Now let's look at the twine of tradition. This is point two. You can write that down if you'd like. The twine of tradition. Twine is much like a rope. It's made of a different fabric or a different substance. Many times it feels like it's a plastic coating on it and smaller than a rope, a thinner version of it. But a twine, unlike a chain, a twine is several different uh, strings, if you will, intertwined or braided. I think you all have a picture in your mind of what that would look like. Verse 15, it says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Verse 15 says, therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? It's, Paul has just said, you've been chosen. Here's the plan. God's had this plan for a long time, and praise God, you're a part of it. And here's where the plan ends up you obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now that you know the plan, here's what you need to do about it. This is the plan, therefore, stand fast. Stand fast. Now, the interesting thing about this twine, as I said, it's, it's multiple things working together at the same time. Unlike a chain where it's one after the other after the other, this is several things connected, intertwined, overlapping and they all need to be working together at the same time. Paul says, stand fast. Stand fast. Why? Not everybody's aware of this plan. The world is going to fight against it. The devil is going to walk about seeking whom he may devour. He's going to try to blow you over with all sorts of temptations and false doctrines. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, now don't be as little children. You need to grow up so that you're not blown about with every wind of doctrine. So stand fast because something's going to come along and smack you hard and try to get you off path. Try to get you out of, out of balance. Try to get you to fall away. 
He says in verse 15, stand fast and hold the traditions. Sometimes the winds of life, the storms of life blow so hard, it's not enough to just stand under your own power. You've got to hold on to something. Have you ever been in a storm that hard, that, that violent, where you had to hold on to something to keep from getting blown over? While I was in Bible school, there were two hurricanes that hit Florida while I was there. We had to leave our house because we had a little tin can of a house, a little mobile home. And uh, those are just death traps during a tornado or a hurricane. But those hurricanes blew through, and Pensacola is about an hour off the coast. So it's a, it's a hot spot for these. We had to go down to a local uh, public school, and we slept in the hallway of the school. We had to bring our own little beds and everything, little mats. And <laughs> that wind, when you were going from the car into the school, you couldn't walk a straight line. The wind is blowing so hard, it would just blow you one side, blow you to the other side. And we got Megan, she's just a little baby at the time, and I'm holding on to Christina. She's holding on to Megan. We look like one of those Russian doll sets, you know, <laughs> inside, inside, inside. I'm holding on to everybody going, hang on, hang on. Paul says, stand fast. Well, amen. Ephesians 6, having done all, stand, right? That's what Paul says, having done all, stand. But then in order to stand fast, you might need to hold on to something. He says in verse 15, hold the traditions. Hold the traditions. So if you're holding on, that'll stabilize you. And he says, hold the traditions. Now, not just any tradition. If the verse stopped there, I think we'd be in trouble because then everybody would just cling to their culture. Go, well, this is what I've always been taught and always done, so I'll just keep doing that. A very specific set of traditions. Hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. These are apostolic traditions. Now, if we're going to hold on to something that will stabilize us, it does you no good to hold something that is not deeply rooted and grounded. If you're holding on to something flimsy, it will go when you go. You need to hold on to something that is deeply rooted. How deep do you want it? Well, let me give you something pretty deep. The Father sent the Son to the earth and said, Son, when you go down there, I want you to do and say as I tell you. So when Jesus comes down and begins to teach and preach and work amongst the people, you know what he's doing? This, what he is doing has been passed down to him from the Father. That's pretty stable. That's pretty stable. We can trust that. And then when Christ gets done with his earthly ministry, what does he tell the apostles? He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world, right? So then he commissions the apostles. If you've heard me do it, if you've seen me do it, go teach them. That's, that's a nice continuity. The Father gave it to the Son, the Son gave it to the apostles, and now the apostles go all over as far as they can teaching people, this is what our Savior said. This is what he told us to do. And now as they go, he says in verse 15, whether by word, sometimes the apostle showed up and was there to teach them, or if he wasn't there, or our epistle. The apostle would write a letter to that church and say, this is what I want you to do. Look at here, guys. We still have those letters. We do not need anybody else to come in and add to the apostolic traditions that we have in the Bible. This is their traditions passed on to us, and we are able to continue to believe and practice 
Just like the Father told Jesus, Jesus told the apostles, and the apostles to this day are still speaking to us. As it says in the book of Hebrews, they being dead yet speaketh, because we still have a Bible. And we're supposed to hold on to this. You say, man, life gets tough, and I get smacked and smacked and side to side, and I'm all over the place. I don't have very much stability. What do I do? Here you go. Hang on to this. This will give you some stability. If, if I can direct your attention to your outline, I've given you a verse, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Do you see that there? Acts 2 verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. What you're reading about there is that first church in Jerusalem. They continued steadfastly in apostles' doctrine. They believed what the apostles were teaching them. Guys, we still have the apostles' doctrine right here with us. Not only that, it's not just a belief thing, but in fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. There are certain things that we are supposed to still do to this day. They did them 2,000 years ago. Things like coming together for church, assembling together. They did that often. Oftentimes, they would do it every day. They would break bread, they fellowship, they would eat together, fellowship together. They would have the Lord's Supper, they would baptize people, they would evangelize, they would disciple, they would comfort one another, they would exhort one another. All of those things should still be happening today. What happens is we say, well, times are changing, and therefore let's change Christianity along with those times. When you change the Christian faith to match the day and age in which we live, you have a a mutant form of Christianity. You might stick the same name on it, but it's not biblical Christianity. Paul says, guys, hold on. Contend for the faith. The things we're passing on to you, you don't need to change, update, modify. These things will keep you grounded so that when life smacks you, when tribulations happen, you stay tethered to the pole. You say, well, you know, Brother Mike, times are tough and COVID is is difficult. Yes, it is. And with things like this, maybe we have to adjust. We can only have 50 inside and a bunch of people outside, you lucky ones in the sunlight out there. Maybe we have to adjust to, to fit the situation we're in, but we don't change the requirement that God gave us of meeting together. We just find a different way to do it. What happens when the government says you can no longer evangelize and tell people they need to be saved? Then we find another way to do it. What happens when the country says you can't send missionaries into this country? We don't want them. We send them anyway. Amen. Because we'd rather obey God than men. Because there are certain things that are non-negotiable. They must be done. Say, well, they're going to kill you. You're going to become martyrs. Well, that's not what I want, but certain things must be done. Because I know the overall plan. I know the plan. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God wants to choose everybody. But they have to first hear the truth so they can believe it. Well, they're not going to hear it if we don't go tell them. So that must be done. I am not going to allow the circumstances of my life, the tribulations coming my way, to untether me, to disconnect me from what God has commanded me to do and say and believe. Knowing that the problems are going to happen, I'm going to stand fast and hang on, and these things are going to keep me tethered during tribulations. We must not become fair-weather followers of Christ. 
well, as long as everything is fine and the government says I can and, uh, you know, there's no COVID and as long as everything just lines up perfect and the stars are aligned just right, then, then I will go on with what God tells me to do as long as it's convenient and doesn't cost too much and doesn't ask too much of me, as long as I'm comfortable with it. That's not biblical Christianity. Uh, amidst the tribulations, even if it is uncomfortable, God, I'm going to do what you told me to do. 16 and 17, verses 16 and 17, point three. You can either have a chain of being chosen, the twine of traditions, biblical traditions, that is an ongoing, repeated practice, or you can have the rope of reassurance. The rope of reassurance. Now notice in verse 13, it was the word but, and then verse 15, therefore, verse 16, now. Now, so he's going to conclude on this. There's a plan. This overall, this big plan that God has. I know where I fit in the plan. I know which link of the chain I'm on. I know which step of the process I'm on. Now, because of the plan, problems are happening. This is what's going to keep me tethered. Knowing the plan and what should I do during the plan. I'm going to keep practicing biblical Christianity. Hanging on to biblical faith. Now, that's what I need to do. That's what I should expect, but it ain't going to be easy. Just because I know the plan and just because I have the instructions for what to do during the plan does not mean it's going to be easy. So he says, now, based on everything I've told you, you need some reassurance. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, which hath loved us. You see, just like a twine, several things happening at once. Several things God expects me to be doing all at once. That's a twine. The rope is built the same way. It's braided together. Multiple things happening at one time. These things are going to reassure us. So that when we get weak and our hands get feeble from holding on to that rope or that twine, God steps in and says, let me, let me help you out a bit because this isn't easy. Even our Father which hath loved us. Because the world is going to make it clear that they don't love you. Jesus said, the world hates me and they're going to hate you too. And that's not easy. When you step into your workplace and tell people you're a Christian and all they do is make fun of you day and night. When you live in a home or in a neighborhood where being a Christian is not popular and they leave you out of everything and speak evil of you just because of Christ. The world says we hate you. You know what God does? He steps in and reassures you and says, they may hate you, but I love you. I love you more than words could possibly say, and I just want you to know that. And I know for eight hours you've been at work, and all they've done is made fun of you and hate you because of me. But now, listen, I want you to know this. Stand fast. Hang on, because I love you with a love stronger than their hate. Reassurance. It says next in verse 16, and hath given us everlasting consolation. See, the world has some very extravagant standards. You have to live up to these standards. You have to accomplish these goals. And, you know, the stress of trying to live up to all of those standards and the pressure that you feel from life. You've, you fail to live up to what the world thinks is successful. God steps in then and consoles you. He says, listen, they, they may not think you're worth much. They may think that your time and effort here at the office or in the classroom is a complete waste. I just want you to know that what you're doing means something to me. Don't give up with the effort you're making. You're doing it the way I told you to do it. Your life means something. You are worth it. Keep on working. 
It says, and given us everlasting consolation. You know that word everlasting is important there. Because you go to work and the boss says, I got these standards. I want you to put in extra time. You got to make these promotions. You go, but man, if, if I put in all this work at the office or all this work in the classroom, I'm not going to have time enough to fellowship with God and spend time with my wife and kids and family. God, how can I do this? If I do it the world's way, I'm going to go crazy. God says, you do it the way I told you to. Work hard while you're at work. Work hard in the classroom. But don't, don't turn your nose up. Don't despise your family. Don't despise the church. Don't despise your time with God. Spend time on that because those things eternally are going to pay off. Everlasting consolation. God says, the efforts you're making to keep things right with me are worth it. That's the rope of reassurance. And he says at the end of verse 16, and good hope through grace. The naturalistic, humanistic worldview says that there is nothing beyond this life. When you die, you're dead. And that's it. Nothing, nothing gets carried over to the next life. If something unfair happened in this life, deal with it. Tough luck. Just how it goes. That's the naturalistic world. That's the humanistic world view. You know what God says? You have something to look forward to. Good hope through grace. I do not deserve the future that I'm promised. But what a future. What a future. I am not going to get everything that a man can desire in this, in this life. But why would I want it? What good would it be if I got it? I can't have it forever. Whatever success I achieve, whatever money I get, whatever accomplishment, I'll leave all that here. There's only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I have something on the other side of this life. A good hope through grace. The blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have something to look forward to. When I'm dead, that's not the end of me. That's just the beginning. For to me to live is Christ and, and to die is gain. That's when the good stuff starts. And you know what's exciting about that is I kind of enjoy this life. Amen. I love you folks. Problems and all. Amen. You can smile at that. I, I love you folks. I love coming to church. I like being in South Africa. I love my family. I got a few health problems, but man, I got pretty good health. I, I, eat, I eat food three times a day whenever I feel. I got, I got a good life. No complaints. But man, this is as bad as it's ever going to be for me. This is as bad as it gets. This is as close to hell as I'll ever be. Man, thank God I got good hope through grace. I got something to look forward to. And when life discourages you and stomps on you, makes you feel like there's no point to it, God shows up with this rope of reassurance and says, don't fly off. Don't run away. I'm telling you, this is the right way to spend your time because it will pay off down the line. It's a rope of reassurance. Verse number 17, comfort your hearts. Comfort your hearts. Life, there's so many things that can break your heart. Your, life, your heart can be overcharged, it says in one place, overcharged with cares. How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to fix this relationship with my old friend or this family member? I just don't, we've, been, uh, we've been frustrated with each other for 20, 30 years. How is this ever going to come right? How, how do you comfort someone that's just lost a loved one? There's so many things that can break our hearts, so many times, so many opportunities for bad news in this life. 
You know what's wonderful? Sometimes, listen, there is no way. You can't step in and say, listen, you have a, uh, an illness that's going to kill you, so let me just take it away. We can't do that. We can pray that God does it right, and God can do such a miracle, but listen, there's no way that we can guarantee we can fix their physical problem. Sometimes the debt that they're stuck in, you, you don't have enough money to pay that debt. Sometimes that relationship is so far gone, you can't fix it. Now, I know God can step in and do something. But sometimes, there's nothing you can do to fix the problem. So you know what you do? You sit next to that person and you weep with them that weep. You say, brother, I'm so sorry. I don't know what to do. I just want you to know that I'm right here with you. And the pain that you're feeling, I'll feel it with you. This cross that you're carrying, I'll bear this burden with you. Listen, you know what God does? He pulls up right next side of you. And he says, all the afflictions that you're afflicted with, I'm also afflicted. The feeling of your infirmities, I'm touched with them. The shortest verse in the English Bible, Jesus wept. He says, those tears that are falling from your, from your eyes, just want you to know that when they're falling from yours, they're falling from mine too. The Lord says, I, I just want you to know, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you so that you can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. God says, you're never alone. I'm right here with you. Why does God do all these things? Why does he reassure us like this? Over and over again, giving us what we need. At the end of verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. You see, those are, that links back to the traditions as Christians, there are things that I should be saying and there are things that I should be doing. Now, sometimes as you do and say those things, you get weak and weary. And you start off doing them and then you stop doing them because you don't see the immediate results. You think, what's the point? Everybody hates me for doing this. My own family, some people in my church don't even like me doing this. Why keep doing it? And God shows up with this rope of reassurance and says, don't stray too far from the path. Let me keep you nice and tight and close to me. Don't give up on this. You keep doing and saying what I commanded you to do. In the book of Acts chapter 5, there's a story of the apostles getting arrested. And the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish parliament, if you will, the Sanhedrin, the high court, they said, no more. You stop preaching, stop doing miracles in the name of Jesus. Threw him in prison. An angel of the Lord shows up and liberates them. Opens the prison doors and says, you guys go on out. Go, go up there to the temple. Verse 20, I've given you on the paper. Go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. They've been thrown in prison. Society hated what they were doing. The leaders of their country said, sit down. And shut up. God opened the door and said, stand up, speak up. <laughs> Take a stand and speak. The world's going to hate it, but I'd rather do what God told me to do. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, but a fantastic story of this Gentile woman, this Moabite widow, has no business being in Israel under normal circumstances. She had married an Israelite. He had passed away, and Ruth came back to the land of Bethlehem and Judah there and met, met a man named Boaz, went to work in his field. 
Now, there was a very high probability that as a Moabite, as a stranger, she would be counted the bottom of the barrel, an outcast of society. And Jewish law was that a stranger was allowed to work in the fields, but this was a time in Jewish history that they didn't really pay attention to the Bible much. So Ruth stood very little chance of getting any help. But she went to a field of a man named Boaz, and he was a man of God. He respected the Lord. He respected the Bible. He followed those biblical principles. And he met Ruth. He he heard about her and said, you know, I heard your testimony. You've stayed faithful to your mother-in-law. You're doing things biblically even though you're a Moabite. We can't even find a lot of Jews that will do anything biblical. And you, a Moabite, are, are following the Bible. He said, I want you to know that all that you've done hasn't gone unnoticed. I see what you're doing. Ruth, tell you what. Anytime you need some extra food, you feel free to work in my fields here. And then Boaz does the most fantastic thing. I've given it to you on your paper, Ruth 2, verse 16. He turns to his young men, his servants, and he commands them, Let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her and leave them, that she may glean them and rebuke her not. This was the time for harvesting mealies, ears of corn. You know what Boaz said? Leave some extra mealies in the field. Drop them out of your basket on purpose. Do it on purpose. Purposely leave some encouragement. And to everybody else, it'll look like an accident. But do it on purpose. Carry your basket. Oops. Oh, I dropped five mealies. Uh. And just go about your business. And see, to everybody else, it just looks like it was an accident. But you know deep down, oh, Boaz is taking care of me. Boaz, he just dropped a little little bit of encouragement along my path. It may not mean anything to anybody else, but to me, this means the world. This is God. This is my Redeemer, my Boaz, my heavenly Boaz telling me, listen, Nobody else give you a chance. I'm going to take care of you. You have a place here in my house. You can be here, work with me, serve with me. You're going to find comfort. You're going to find reassurance that you're accepted in the beloved. I'm so glad that we have a God that constantly and consistently drops handfuls of purpose on our lives. It's the rope of reassurance. You're doing the right thing. Just stick with it. I mentioned it earlier, but let me close with this thought. The world, as it batters us back and forth, and that ball just swings one side and the next side, and, you know, sometimes it gets out of control, and you start to get wrapped up and wrapped up and wrapped up in life. You think, man, I'm about to lose it. I'm getting so wrapped up. I'm so wound up and so tight. I'm going to lose it. Because in tetherball, that's how you lose. You just get wrapped up, and, and that ball comes to an Immediate standstill, boom, right there around the pole. You think, man, I've lost it. No, actually, that's when you're doing pretty good. Now you're as close to the pole as you can be. You're wrapped up in Christ. You're, the, the interesting thing, whether it's a chain, whether it's a rope or a twine, it gets so tightly wrapped around the pole that it is actually sometimes difficult to get it unwrapped. Sometimes it can get so knotted up that you have to really work to get that ball off the pole. Do you see? Do you get the point? 
Sometimes the tribulations of life can drive you so close to the Savior that it gets you so tight with Him that it becomes difficult to get you split apart. So rather than getting frustrated and stressed out with the tribulations, why not thank God for them? Say, God, you've told me this is part of the plan. You've told me what to do when it happens. And when it gets tough and when I feel like quitting, you show up and reassure me that it's all worth it. And if you're paying attention, you might realize that you have become as close to Christ as you ever have been. You need to stay tethered during tribulations. Let's all stand if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed for a few moments. wonder this morning maybe maybe even this week life has smacked you from side to side and you've considered quitting I wonder if this morning you just take a look at the rope the twine the chain and before you fly off to another path Just remember that there is something keeping you joined to the Lord. Say, Pastor Mike, I'm so weak, I can't hold the rope. Well, the wonderful thing about this is the rope is holding you. Friend, if you have never receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're outside of that plan that God has. So I, I want to be one of those chosen, one of the eight Therkisen. Good. That's up to you. God has done His part of the plan. He sent His Son to die for you. Now the next step is you believing that. You receiving Christ as your Savior. You do that and the Spirit comes in and begins to work in you sanctify you use you change you and then all things work together for good I got two, two questions we're going to close number one is anybody here that would be willing to say pastor just pray for me I, I don't think I'm part of that plan I've never received Christ as my savior but I see that I need to now, I'm not going to point you out. I won't embarrass you. But would you just put your hand up? You can put it right back down. Say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm not saved, but I, I'm thinking about it. Anybody like that? Anybody outside like that? Another question. How many of you feel like that tether ball just getting smacked side to side? getting all wound up. Life just keeps hitting you so hard. It just feels like chaos every time you turn around. Say, Pastor, pray for me. I, I want to stay close to the pole. Anybody like that? Say, Pastor, just pray for me. I'm going through a tough time. and Man, I, I want to hang on to these cords that God's given me. I appreciate that. Thank you. Some folks outside like that, I'm looking out there as much as I can. Thank you. I see that. 
Pastor, my heart's breaking. My head's spinning. I'm not sure what to do next. Pray for me. Plenty of hands. Father, you saw these hands that went up. Lord, remind them today that they're they're part of that chain of being chosen. There's a twine of tradition started with you, Father, down through Christ, through the apostles, and all the way to us. These traditions work. They serve a purpose. Lord, I pray you might give them some handfuls of purpose this morning. Reassure them, God, that they're going to make it. Reassure them that their efforts are not in vain. Lord, help them as they go round and round. Help them to recognize they're getting closer to the pole. Help them to cling to you, cleave to you, hold you fast. Lord, thank you for the great love wherewith you love us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.